The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast. Bringing you strange but true things from the past. It's not the average history that you learned in school. We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools. And stories that are just too crazy to believe. The stranger than fiction and super unique. Well, hi, Rosemary. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, hello. Hello from London. It's great to be here, Kevin. Very excited that you want to learn more about Nellie Bly. Yeah, very glad to have you. And thank you for joining us uh, all the way from London, despite the time change. Uh, I think it, it's morning for me, but afternoon for you. Yeah. You've had breakfast and I've had lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, all right. Well, tell. we were chatting a little bit before we got started and you were telling me a little bit about your background. Um, can you share that with us? You're, you're originally Canadian, but you've ended up in London. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey. Uh, yes, I was born in Canada and my parents immigrated to Florida, where I spent most of my childhood. And then I came to England to find my roots. And um, it's the same old story. You then don't return. And um, uh, part of it was for history, you know, history to come and find out the history of my family, my on my mom's side and my dad's side. And uh, and so I've been here longer than I ever was in Canada or America. And it's a great place, particularly great place if you like history and monuments and quirky stories. We have a lot of eccentrics throughout history and even <laughs> right now, even right now. The, the England is, uh, the UK is at the height of my bucket list of places to go being a history person. Yeah, it would be great. Well, you could spend the night on the Golden Hind. You could bring your kids and spend the night on the Golden Hind, Francis Drake's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, for those of you listening, we were chatting about this. The last episode dealt with Sir Francis Drake, and Rosemary was telling me that there is a ship a replica ship that you can actually become a member of the crew and kind of do this living history experience. Yep. Sounds so cool. It must, I guess living history must be something that I find myself attracted to because the whole Nellie Bly story was about reliving her history. Yeah, your story kind of is a, a, a reenactment, if you will, of, of something she did. Um, I guess to lay a bit of a foundation for people who aren't familiar uh, with who Nellie Bly is, and she's famous for quite a few things. Um, can you just give us kind of a simple uh, mini biography of, of who she is? Uh, oh, of course, yes. Um, Nellie Bly was born in 1864, right at the end of the Civil War. And uh, she was born into, at the time, a very wealthy family. Her father was the mill owner, and, and indeed he was a judge. But um, at the tender age of six, she uh, lost her father and he hadn't bothered to make a will. So the family fell into deep, deep, deep poverty. And that's what gave her, I believe, the determination to do what she wanted to accomplish, what she wanted to accomplish, but also to look out for, for other vulnerable people. Um, so she, she, despite all the difficulties she made she became a journalist in a very magical way talk about to the <laughs> truth stranger than fiction um i'll just briefly say that she uh was incensed when there was an article in the pittsburgh 
newspapers saying that women belonged in the home and girls and women should never have jobs and it, you know, all these kind of things that just fired her up. She wrote a letter to the editor. The editor was so impressed with the letter, he hired her as a reporter. So she went from being kind of- On the spot. Pretty much, oh yeah, on the spot. As soon as he met her, uh, he knew. Well, he could tell by the letter and he, he hired her. And um, well, in some ways the rest is history. Uh, that was the beginning of her journalism career. And um, from there she went to the New York world uh, where she had the most extraordinary assignments. And, um, and even on, as she died, she was working for a newspaper in New York writing about the plight of poor and vulnerable people, particularly um, women and children. Yeah, she is, you know, we lump her in with what we call the muckrakers, these uh, intrepid journalists who went out to expose the world as it is. And she had no qualms about going into harm's way or going into dangerous situations. Uh, my first encounter with her was, um, um, so I work as a curator by day and we were doing an exhibit on medical history in the uh, 19th century. And we yeah. wanted to touch on mental health. And we, we learned about her 10 days in a madhouse. Where madhouse, she, yes. She gets herself um, committed, basically. Yeah. Into, one, she fakes her way into it, which is impressive. But then she yeah. writes from the inside. What is an asylum actually like? Yep. It's incredible. Now, to tell you the truth, Kevin, that particular achievement is the one I admire most of hers. Because she actually convinced the, the authorities that she was crazy. In fact, they were so determined that she was crazy that Joseph Pulitzer, the editor of her newspaper, Joseph Pulitzer of the Pulitzer Prize, had to send lawyers to get her out because they wouldn't let her out. And that's why she spent 10 days instead of just a few days in that madhouse. And what she did in there is she heard the stories, but she also was subjected to the same horrific treatment, right. cold baths, rancid food, uh, having your hair pulled till your scalp bled, beatings, um, but maybe even worst of all was the, the silent treatment being treated like you're worthless. Um, and many of the women in there were, as she said, if they weren't crazy when they went in, they'd be crazy by the time, you know, within days practically. Yes. So uh, she really broke the biggest story of that time, uh, I attribute her and many do as the pioneer of investigative undercover journalism. That's she is absolutely. considered she is considered our first investigative journalist, um, and I am. That's what I'm most proud of for her. But I didn't really want to try to <laughs> sneak into an insane asylum and prove I was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought. Hopefully that would be a little harder to do today. Well, hopefully, and in fact, we do need to mention that there were sweeping reforms to the mental health uh, arena following her article. She did several mm -hmm. articles and then she wrote the book that you talked of, 10 Days in a Madhouse. And that is a huge contribution. And, it, and it's one that continues with investigative journalism. And oftentimes it is dealing with institutions and she often dealt with institutions like prisons, sweatshops, workhouses. And that's my, you know, what I admire most about her. But as I said, I wasn't about to um, 
try to get myself committed to an insane asylum, although they might not have been that hard sometimes. Um, but uh, so I thought, I really want to get this incredible, remarkable woman, I say, back on the map. I felt like she'd been hidden, that she'd been, mm -hmm. that, that nobody ever, ever heard of her. And it seems to me that in days like this, we really need role models like her. So I thought, well, what can I do to, to put her back on the map, to, to put her in the place to allow her to inspire us, not just, um, not just women and not just girls, but all of us, because what she did was extraordinary for a woman, but it was also extraordinary for a, a human being. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I would not do, you know, as, as a male, I would not do any of the things that she went and did, you know, that's, <laughs> I mean, the things that she did, I mean, just fearless. And the, well, she the, was fearless. She was fearless. And she had, she had, despite her, all the things that were kind of going against her, which isn't just the, the misfortune of suddenly finding herself in deepest poverty, but also being a woman then wasn't too easy. Um, she wasn't supposed to be working in a newsroom. She was really just supposed to, if she was, she was supposed to be writing about weddings and luncheons and the social newborn pages. babies, um, but she wasn't having any of that. She broke through those newsroom doors and she actually paved the way for people like me because I'm a journalist as well and I and you are too, I understand. So um, she really did open the doors to female journalists, which is another reason why I admire. She didn't take no for an answer. If she would have taken no for an answer, she never would have gone around the world in 72 days because they said, her editor said, no way, you can't do that. It was her idea to follow in the footsteps of the fictional travels of Phileas Fogg. Um, so, she wanted to see if she could do it faster than 80 days. So this gets us to your book. You focus on one specific uh, adventure that she had. Your, your book is called yes. Following Nellie Bly, her record-breaking race around the world. And when I read the premise of it, I'm because I had never heard this story before. Uh, I'm ashamed to say, I Neither actually had I. to go. I had to go online and look look at it to make sure that this wasn't a novel that she actually did this. <laughs> did I, you really? <laughs> I did. I, it's crazy that she did this. So she, it, for people who may not have read it growing up, um, Jules Verne's famous "Around the World in 80 Days" uh, is a is a. I mean, he wrote science fiction. I'm not sure we would call this necessarily science fiction, but uh, it's this adventure genre and it's, you know, it, it's a novel, it's a fictitious book, but she went to go see if she could actually do it. She wanted to beat the fictitious 80 day record of Phileas Fogg. And when she presented this idea to her editors, they said, oh, wow, that's a really good suggestion. Yes, super, that's fantastic, but you can't do it. It can only be done by a man. You don't speak any other languages. You'd need to take 10 or 12 trunks. You'd have to have a chaperone. No way, you can't do it. We're going to send a man. And she said, fine, send the man. I'm going to the competing newspaper and let's just see who wins this race. And they knew since they knew partly because she'd actually gone undercover in an insane asylum that she would do what she said she was gonna do. So they, they gave in. Challenge accepted. Yes, and 
don't take no for an answer. <laughs> so how did you discover this and what made you decide you wanted to write about this? Well, I've always admired um, female adventurers because it's hard enough to be an adventurer, but to be a female adventurer is even harder. And I like adventures myself. So I was just looking around, um, just doing a little really internet surf of seeing about different women and there's plenty of them. But Nellie Bly jumped off the screen at me, pushed all the others aside, and I had no choice. <laughs> but the funny thing is, we really clicked because, because she's, she was a journalist, because she's completely and totally eccentric. And I really have a soft spot for eccentric people. Um, and, and we just, you know, I didn't struggle. I just, you're right. I said, Nellie, it's you. It's got to be you. And, um, and from then on, it was almost like a tidal wave because if you think, <laughs> if we're talking about strange but true on this program, you might not think I'm crazy to say that actually, I really think that she was with me. <laughs> I really think that she was pushing it, that she wanted herself to be known again. She was quite a publicity seeker in her day and she didn't like being forgotten. And um, anyway, I decided to do it, and I'm really very thrilled that, that, that I was able to, and well before the pandemic, because it would have been very difficult to travel. Um, it was very difficult for her to travel. Now here, I made a list of what I think are strange but true points about Nellie Bly, and this is one of them. Okay, great. Um, <laughs> um, besides from going undercover in an insane asylum, actually being able to convince her editors to let her travel solo in order to be able to to beat Phileas Fogg's record she decided she wasn't taking any trunks she only took one Gladstone bag one tiny bag I don't know if you can see this Kevin I'm showing it to you but it's okay. 16 by 7 inches this is not hers obviously but this is one just like hers and okay, she so, took so this, this is yeah. So for people listening, this is smaller than what you would carry on an airplane. Oh, it's much smaller than a cabin bag. Yes. It's more like, in fact, it's more like what we carry as handbags today, you know, mm -hmm. um, you know, just for our makeup and our telephone and our whatever diaries and things like that. So yes, it's very small. She, so to me, that's truth is stranger than fiction. She traveled around the world for 72 days with this case. And one of the reasons she was able to do that is stranger than fiction fact number two, she wore the same outfit. So the, she had three days notice to go on this trip. The first thing she did was go to a tailor, a very posh tailor in New York and tell him she needed a traveling outfit in 24 hours, could he do it? And he said, yes, which that was also impossible, but he did do it. And so she had a long coat, as you might know, she had this, she had a checkered coat and underneath it was a, a, a kind of a wool dress. And just for your listeners who are thinking, gosh, that's not really very hygienic to wear the same outfit for 72 days. All the things underneath, like um, the slips and the camisoles were washed on a regular basis. So um, it, she was, well, she, well, she if, was if I may. Uh, interrupt yeah. you real quick. You, yeah. Can Please. you contrast this to how a quote unquote normal person would travel at the time? Oh, sure I can. Yes, I can. Thank you for that. A normal, 
uh, dare I say woman, and men too, would have probably a, at least six trunks. A woman would have one trunk just for her gowns. So, and these are big trunks, they're called Saratogas. Um, and they're very big and they're very, very beautiful, but they're heavy. And if you're trying to race around the world, they'll just get in the way. So at least six, I would say she had one tiny bag and one outfit. So she didn't even need to, to pack her outfit because she, she basically had it on all the time. She did carry a nightdress with her um, and she had a tennis jacket for some reason and she had a shawl. So she could kind of mix and match, but not like me. I carried a bag the same size, but it was a rucksack and a, a rolling rucksack. And today, as you know, you can get very lightweight clothes and that ones that you can just wash in the sink. So I basically had an entire wardrobe in the space that she had her few belongings. Yeah, the, the thing that is striking me, so I follow uh, some travel bloggers and travel YouTubers, these nomadic people who just, they, they give their life to travel and they don't really have a home. Um, you know, it's not like yes. vacation, but they just, they live to travel. And that's how they do it. Yeah. They have maybe one little sack and they have a couple changes of clothes. And at, whenever they're at a stop, they do the laundry and they, just keep, they travel light. And she's Can I just say, hundred years ahead your of listeners time. do it. Well, she was way ahead of the game and it's a very um, freeing experience. I've always traveled light, maybe not quite as light as I did for as long as I did, but mm -hmm. never did I feel like I was at a loss for anything. And there's little tricks you can do. Like I like to wear bandanas. All you needed was a couple of bandanas and you can use them around your neck. You can use them as headbands. You can use them as serviettes. You can use them to dry yourself. You can use them to sit on. They can be your tablecloth for a picnic. So there's little tricks that you can do. She didn't have those tricks available. And she also had to carry, um, you know, pens and paper. And I had a tablet, basically, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so life was much easier for me than for her. And I'll always acknowledge that. But just think back then, traveling in that, that way alone, without a chaperone, with one bag and one outfit. <laughs> so... Uh, what's the route that she took? Um, she went um, east to west and she okay. came the from same New way York. that in the book, the same way in the Jules Verne. Yes, but she didn't go to all the same places. Um, she didn't go to India and Jules Verne was a bit disappointed that she didn't go to India because that's where Phileas Fogg falls in love and he wanted Nellie Bly to fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> so he was aware of, of her journey. Well, this is one of the best parts, I think. So I'll just say that she was traveling from New York to, um, to Southampton in England. And um, uh, she'd never been on a ship. So it was like, she, talk about never being on a ship. She was on it for eight days. When she arrived in Southampton, she discovered she'd been invited to visit Jules Verne in France. Now that was the good news. The bad news was it was way out of her way, two days. Mm -hmm. And this was the beginning of the race and all she wanted to do was to win this race. <laughs> she was like totally focused on that. And, um, but she could not resist the honor of visiting Jules Verne. So she was awake, awake for two nights, um, went 200 miles and four train trips out of her way to meet him. And when they met, it was Jules Verne and um, his wife, Honorine, and their dog, Follette. And there was also um, 
the journalist, the London New York World journalist named Tracy Greaves and Robert Sherrard, who was a, believe it or not, is um, a relative uh, of, uh, well, sorry, not a relative, a close, was a close friend of Oscar Wilde. He was also a journalist and he did the translating. And they all went to Jules Verne's house in Amiens, France, which is in the north of France. And they only had a half an hour, but they sat in the parlor and had a glass of wine and she got to go up to his study, um, which is, she was astounded to find was very modest and very small. And, um, and, but they just connected. They really connected all of them. And particularly Jules, Nellie and Honorine. And Jules Verne and Honorine Verne followed her journey via the newspaper throughout the 72 days. And there was a, um, there was a telegram for her when she arrived back in New York. From him waiting. Oh, Wait from him, sorry, from him, Fantastic. from him and Honorine, because Honorine was very taken with her, but a little bit jealous because he said if he could travel, he'd love to go with her. But, <laughs> but he was, he had a bad, his leg was um, not very good at the time, so he couldn't, well, she didn't invite him anyway, but, um, <laughs> uh, but what I wanted to also mention is I, of course, went to visit Jules Verne's house in Amiens, France, which is now open to the public. It's a house museum. And there is evidence of Nellie Bly's visit, little plaques on the wall with sayings from her book, because she ended up writing a book called Around the World in 72 Days. <laughs> um, so, and I also got to go up and be in his study and there's only two places on my whole trip where I knew I was standing in the same place she was and that was one of them. So it was really very meaningful for me too. That's a, that's a good point, because while you're following her from place to place, you don't know precisely where she went. Uh, but that is one place idea. that you know exactly where she was. Oh, yes, I know. I Yeah, it's such a confined place. I knew that we were in the same exact place. There were probably quite a few others, but I couldn't pinpoint it. But this one I could. And it what was a wonderful experience. Yeah, well, that's pretty much truth is stranger than fiction, too, isn't it? That she visited Jules Verne. I mean, on on and it wasn't even on her way. Right, but worth the worth the detour, I'm sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is what I say that um she took a lot of risks, and this is something that a message that I hope my book gets across that um it usually pays to break out of your comfort zone. That um it it's often worth taking risks. Um, it's doesn't feel very good right now because of the pandemic, but in large, in general, when I take risks, and certainly when she did, um, it paid off in the end. So your book- Leap, leap and the net will arrive. <laughs> Go ahead. So, so your book is part travelogue about, about your experiences in travel and kind of what you just alluded to, just go and do it. Um, Go have that kind adventure. Of. Yeah, you can't be afraid because if you're afraid, I think that's when you become vulnerable. People can sense that you're worried on the street alone at night or whatever. That, but if you have a stride, and I, I can't, I wouldn't ever say use that as advice. But by and large, I think if you have a sense of purpose and if you're feeling pretty good, you're almost invincible. I would say. Mm -hmm. Not always, for sure. 
that's the that's the the sense that I get from uh, people who do a lot of traveling is that you're yeah. you're very adaptive. Once you get there, you will figure it out. Don't worry. And also, there's another saying which is called the kindness of strangers. And mm -hmm. people all along the way on her trip and on mine went way out of their way to help us, and we were both very grateful for that. So let's talk about that. What? Uh... Who are some of the interesting people that you met along your, along the way? <laughs> well, one actually is a really great example of, of, of um, strange but true. One of the most interesting people I met was when I was trying to get to Canton, which is now Guangzhou in China. Now, that was one of the most exciting places that Nellie visited. And for me, it was also very exciting because I have I was the chair of the board of an organization called the Rights Practice where we were supporting human rights people in China for 12 years. Uh, so I got to know these, um, these rights defenders in China and we were supporting them in any way we could. So I was kind of on the radar of the Chinese government. It took a longer than usual for me to get a visa to go there. But that wasn't the worst, the most difficult hurdle to, to get over. Day, the day that I was to leave Hong Kong to go to, to Canton, Guangzhou, a huge typhoon arrived in Hong Kong. And it, was, it ended up being a level eight, which is very high. So Hong Kong shut down the night before I was to leave to go to Canton on this very difficult to achieve visa that was also very limited. And when I got up, the, the stock exchange was closed. Uh, there were no flights. The streets were empty. There was wind and rain sweeping all over. Um, and I thought, oh, I said, uh-oh, what am I going to do? Um, I really have to go today. Um, I can take the train, but if the planes aren't flying, are the trains going to be running? So uh, I was really stumped. And I just stood there and thought, what would Nellie Bly do? So I walked straight into the storm. <laughs> <laughs> With I put a raincoat on, <laughs> a rain jacket. Walked straight into the storm, looked around, and would you believe a taxi was a taxi was in the distance. I like this phantom taxi. And I <laughs> waved this taxi down and I said, can you take me to this train station, please? And he said, yes. And then and it was ooh, all kinds of winds. And, um, and we just kept, I didn't, I just kept thinking, please, please get there, get, get there. The trains are running. Okay. The trains are running. I get on my train. My train is completely and totally empty, except when I go to my reserve seat on an empty train, train there's someone sitting in the next seat and I'm thinking oh <laughs> you got the whole just, train I really want some time to de-typhoonize I've had enough of this typhoon I want some space but actually this guy was a flight attendant for Malaysian Airlines and he'd had to go through quite a bit just to get on the train as well because you know it, it just wasn't happening Anyway, we were chatting away, and in the end, I was glad he was there. But I just happened to look up, you know, where they have the luggage carriers above your seats. Would you believe he was carrying 
a replica of Nellie Bly's bag. Seriously. Seriously. I just, <laughs> he, said, he said, what's wrong? I guess my face went white. <laughs> and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I had a photograph of her bag because I put, kept it on my tablet and I showed it to him and he said, wow. And so I guess those type of bags are trendy and he was a trendy guy and he had it or me, 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 That's not an omen. I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah. So that was, he was one person that was really interesting to meet because he was, he battled the storm himself. Um, I, and so we felt like survivors and you know, we felt pretty good and we patted each other on the back. But so he was an interesting person. Um, I guess some of the most interesting people I met uh, were the people that helped. Um, uh, there were lots of people that I would, in, in Japan, it's particularly hard to find your way around because the addresses aren't numerical or they don't go in numerical order. And, you know, and people would just come out and I guess I looked lost and they would actually walk me to where I needed to go. Oh, how nice is that? Yeah, and uh, I mean, people people just bent over backwards. Um, and I, it, I'm very grateful for that. And that's something I would say to your listeners. When you're traveling, there's a pretty good chance you're gonna run into these strangers that will help you. The kindness of strangers. That That's reassuring, because I think a lot of people are afraid of going to a a country where they might speak a different language or yes. the, the customs will be like numerical addresses. And they're yes. afraid they're, they'll be completely and totally alone in that environment. Yes. Sometimes I felt alone, um, but mostly it was also exciting, uh, you know, sure. really exciting. And I had, I was using her book around this world in 72 days to find my way from place to place. And that was really helpful because she's she's quite good. She's got charts and you know how long it took her to get from here to there. And so she was a lot more thorough than I was at mapping her journey. Now, what were some of the differences of traveling in the 21st century versus when 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 she traveled in, in the late 19th? Because I think just the world is structured different politically. I mean, in around the world in 80 days a lot of the stops that they make throughout Asia, um, Phineas Fogg and, and, and Passepartout, they, I mean, they don't even actually leave the British Empire. At well, the time. that's very interesting. And that's quite controversial over here now in the United Kingdom. So I'm very careful when I talk about colonialism and um, empire. But the bottom line is the way she was able to travel uh, around Europe was because of the British Empire. Um, she was not a fan of England. Uh, she always was sticking up for America. If she saw an embassy, she saluted the flag and, you know, uh, but uh, that's very true. So also I wanted to replicate her trip as closely as I could, but I did not have the choice to, to take ships because even right. if I tried, many of the routes are gone and maybe I could have gone on a container ship, but I would still be out there now. Um, so that, for that, I had to go by air, um, at least to fit in with my lifestyle with a very nice husband and I had a teenage daughter, you can't be gone for two years. Um, right. So that was a major difference, the way, the way that she traveled and the way that I traveled. I traveled by sea. She traveled by sea, 
and I travel by air. If I could have traveled by sea, I would have liked to have. Um, the other changes would be in, um, we're much more globalized now. So what she was doing was far more uh, adventurous in some ways than what I'm doing. I could even look up videos of where I was going before I, you know, to learn about them, but she was approaching things totally fresh and new and um, uh, greeting new cultures. Something else you might like to know, um, is that her friends before she left, they said, you better take a revolver with you. You better take a gun just in case. And she said, I have no intention of carrying a gun. I intend for people to greet me the way that I greet them with friendship. So you know, that's kind of neat for someone then. Uh, yeah. yeah. So um, other things that were different, well, to be honest, I have to tell you, Kevin, a lot of what she saw no longer exists. So I was pretty disappointed about that. Um, I'd done my research, but if you can spend your whole life researching and never go on your trip. So I had to give it up at one and get out there and see for myself. So I was quite shocked to find all the things that were no longer there. Um, there was only one hotel that she stayed in that still stands. Um, and I have, and I stayed there, of course. But there's, but it's half the half the size that it used to be, and they had never heard of Nellie Bly, um, so there was no no way I could could feel I couldn't feel her there. I couldn't feel her in a lot of places, certainly in Jules Verne's study and home. But mm -hmm. in some of these cities, um, it was really hard because because of pro so-called progress. You know, the world moves on. Also, there had been in um, uh, in Japan, in Yokohama, where she was, there had been a terrible 1923 earthquake, which wiped out most, a lot of Yokohama after she left. Um, so that was a bit of a disappointment. But here's the kindness of strangers. Well, what happened in over 100 years? Sure, yeah. I went on the 125th anniversary of her trip, so 125 years later. But just to give you another example of the kindness of strangers, I didn't know what to do in Yokohama because I couldn't find her. I could find places that she'd been in, and there were a few left. But I, So I went to the History Museum there, and would you believe a young woman came and just helped me so much. She got out photograph albums and postcard albums and books to show me what it was like when she was there and what she would have seen. Isn't that nice? I mean, and I didn't book an appointment in advance or anything. I just turned up. What I, I assume as you were going from place to place, you were explaining to people what it was you were doing and, and the trip you were recreating. Um, what was the reaction of some of the people that when, when you told them you were going around the world in 72 days? <laughs> I think most everybody was pretty excited, but all travelers have interesting tales to tell in some ways. Um, but I think uh, people were supportive. Um, uh, they, they, I had a blog at the time and some of them signed up to see what I was doing. And um, so I think people were, were pleased kind of sad not to find as much as I hoped to find. And even in New York City, the New York World Building, which was stunningly gorgeous and like really, really um, ahead of its time, is long gone for, you know, a, a highway. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so uh, there's, 
it was hard even in America, or maybe even especially in America, to track her. So the one thing I, I do have to ask, if you read the Around the World in 80 Days book, kind of, I'm, I'm going to spoil it for listeners at home. Uh, but if you haven't read it, it's been out for over a century, so it's not my fault if you haven't read it. Um, the, 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 the big climax at the end is, you know, they thought they missed the deadline, but when you factor in the, the spin of the earth and things like that and going from east to west, uh, he made that factored in, right? He picked up an extra 24 hours. Uh, did, yeah. did Nellie Bly factor that into her, into her 72 day figure? Oh, I don't, I don't know if she did, but um, she was, she promised that she would do it in 75 days and she did it in 72, but Jules also didn't even matter. She... Yeah, not really. It didn't matter for her, but it did for him. And uh, Jules Verne called it the denouement, which is a French word, which means kind of like the mystery, the thing that made it happen. Um, and that's how he started the whole novel. He read about this timeline and he thought, wow, I could do something with this. And that's where Around the World in 80 Days came from. Now in America soon, if it's not happening already, there will be the equivalent of Masterpiece Theater of Around the World in 80 Days. I'm watching it right now. It's okay, uh, well, on PBS. Exactly. Well, who do you think, who do you think the young woman that's accompanying Phileas Fogg and Passepartout is? It's, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be Nellie Bly. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, she's, uh, she dresses like her. She acts like Ms. her. Miss Fix. Yeah, she acts just like her. Miss Fix. I'm sure it's based on Nellie Bly. I yeah. have no doubt. You know, really I, I, I never put that. Yeah, I did not put that together at all. That's she dressed like her. She acted like her. And even in the first episode, I think it is when she's telling her father she wants to, to, to go with Phileas Fogg. Yeah. And um, she uses some of the same language that Nellie Bly used when she convinced the editors that she should go. Oh my goodness. I, yeah. yeah there you go. So it's look, totally her. it's absolutely <laughs> her. Your podcast is even more relevant than you thought. Now that could be also, a, a, the truth is stranger than fiction. Yes. <laughs> so Abigail Fix, in my opinion, is totally based on Nellie Bly. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, great series, by the way, for anyone listening. It's, it's oh, I really enjoyed really it. I, yeah, it's it's really worth watching. It's very adventurous, and there's quite a bit of violence. So shut your eyes at certain points if it bothers you. But it's a very good story, mm -hmm. and the acting is superb. Yes, um, the the guy who plays Phineas Fogg. Um, um, oh boy, his name Tennant. David Tennant. David Tennant. Thank you. Yeah, he's uh, he's Doctor Who. He was the Doctor yes, Who. he's one of the Doctor Who's. Uh, and he's been in a few, I think, masterpiece theaters for other yes. other performances. He's, he's, Great actor. Nevin, yeah. can I tell you one more? Um, Absolutely. Uh, story, Absolutely. True. This is really important, I think, because there's a happy ending to this story, although it's sad. Um, I just want to tell you this because I think it's important. When I went to New York, I wanted to make a pilgrimage to Nellie Bly's grave, which is in a really interesting and historic cemetery called Woodlawn. And I went there with the best of intentions and the uh, curator, the, his, the head of history there met me and two other, my friends, and we went to her grave. And I was devastated to find that she was buried in a pauper's grave. 
1922. So this is the 100th anniversary of her death this year. In fact, it was the 27th of January, um, 1922. She was buried in a pauper's grave from 1922 until 1978 when the New York Press Club put up a relatively modest tombstone, no higher than my knee. Um, I was very um, devastated. I was, I really, I wasn't, it wasn't grief. It was just, what? She yeah. ended up life in poverty in a pauper's grave? I couldn't believe it. But that's, that is the reality. And the main reason that happened is because she was spending her money and time on helping other people. And she also, to be honest, she was not very good with money at all. <laughs> uh, she wasn't good at managing money. But still, that was the truth. And that's, I've had to kind of come to terms with through the years. But this December, on December 8th, 2021, a most amazing monument was unveiled on Roosevelt Island, just steps away from the insane asylum that she went undercover in. And it's a beautiful, well, it's a remarkable 60 foot long uh, installation with her and the faces of four other women, the type of women that she would have been championing, that she would have been helping. And there's um, three mirrored spheres. One represents the world that she circled. And it's a, a, a spectacular monument done by Amanda Matthews of Prometheus Art in Kentucky. And I was there because I had to be to see it unveiled because I really felt that now Nellie Bly is back on the map. Yeah, do you think that over the last few decades we've kind of rediscovered her? Do you think that she was somewhat forgotten for a, oh, she a few was decades totally after forgotten. her death? I believe she was forgotten until the last decade. The, the, um, Brooke Kruber wrote this book, um, Nellie Bly, but before that she was completely forgotten. Maybe she'd be in little, little kids' biographies, but that was my goal was to, to rescue her from the dustbin of history and to get her back on the map to inspire us. And when that monument was unveiled, I felt like that had happened. Good. Very good, and you're you're contributing to that uh, rediscovery of her with your work too. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, that was that would be my goal. But if you go to New York City to Roosevelt Island, it's it's you'll you'll love it because it's there's a lot of symbolism in it too. It's not just a straightforward statue. It's got a lots and lots and lots of messages for us. And the artist herself, Amanda Matthews, said that installation is continuing the work that Nellie Bly started um, to 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 work for people, her humanitarianism, her belief that everybody should have the same rights. And that installation portrays those those values of Nellie Bly. Very good. Well, I think if I ever get the chance to go to New York, that's going to be one of my stops on my sightseeing tour. Please, you don't need to go to her tombstone. It's not worth it. And <laughs> <laughs> for people listening, if they want to go check that out, that is an island. It's in the middle of the East River, correct? Yes. And it's, um, it's in fact, there's a lot to see there. It's called Roosevelt Island. In her day, it was Blackwell's Island. Blackwell's there's Island. There's a lot we, to see there, and well, um, especially now. <laughs> one of our... Uh, um, 
the very first episodes for this podcast, we interviewed an author who did a book just on Blackwell's Island. Oh, so you know all about it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, is there anything um, uh, we can expect from you uh, that you have in the works for the future? Well, I'm always looking to find people like Nellie Bly, and I'm, I'm looking into a woman named Celia Fines, who traveled across England on horseback about 5,000 miles in uh, the 17th and early 18th century. Um, well, so let's see where I can go with that. Yeah. All right. Um, well, if, if you're able to uh, finish that work, you are more than welcome to uh, come back on here. I'd love to. I'd love to. And it's really been fun. And thank you very much for this opportunity, Kevin. Oh, you're welcome. And if people want to learn more about you or pick up a copy of the book, where can they go? Uh, well, it's being, well, it's, you can find it on websites or um, order it from your local bookstore. That would be really nice. And the publishers in America are called Casemate, Casemate IPM, but it's following Nellie Bly, her record-breaking race around the world. But ideally, please ask your local bookshop to get it and you can support your local bookshop and support uh, publishing in general. <laughs> yeah, they need it right now. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Have a good day. <laughs> you too.